All right, Revelation 1, 4 to 8, God's Word says this, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Hear this, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and this is our focus this morning, and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, There are few topics in the Bible that excite me more than talking about the kingdom of God and our glorious King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. Uh, He is a king who is merciful and gracious and loving and executes justice. Jesus is perfect. The office, this office of Jesus, this kingly office, should and must provide us great comfort in this present time. We have nothing to fear because our great king, he reigns forevermore. We sing a song, he shall reign forevermore. Jesus is the undefeated, all-powerful king of the universe. Even death could not hold him. A title closely connected to the kingship of Jesus is this word. He's called the Christ. Used in the New Testament of Jesus, the Christ is known as this, it's defined as this, as the Messiah. That is the anointed one. If we look back to the Old Testament, King David was anointed uh, when he took his, his throne at Hebron. When he assumed the throne over Israel, the anointing of of oil symbolizes a special purpose or a set-apart task. As Christ, Jesus is this. He's the long-expected king who has come to set his people free, establishing his kingdom of justice and mercy and grace. We declare this truth this morning. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. And so we've been asking this question each week as we've looked at how Jesus fulfills prophet, priest, and king. We've asked this, how does Jesus fulfill the office of king now? How does Jesus fulfill the office of king? Well, first and foremost, he comes from a kingly lineage. He comes from a kingly lineage. Jesus physically fulfills the messianic kingly prophecies spoken throughout the Old Testament. He is the long-awaited deliverer of God's people. He is this. He's a physical descendant of King David. King David was known as a man after God's own heart. And even in David's flaws, if you read through the Old Testament, David had many flaws. God set apart David's lineage as the one that would bring about the king who does this, who ushers in everlasting hope and peace and comfort. 
This is the promise that we learn uh, uh, to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and then we'll skip to verse 16. It says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, the promise is this, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Nathan goes on to say this, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, everlasting. Linking this now to the New Testament, if you ever wondered why the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in our New Testament, begins with genealogies. What are genealogies? Right? Where we see where someone is connected. Those who, who came before them, their family. The Bible shows us in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the son of David. It says this in Matthew 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the New Testament says, the book of the genealogy of who? Of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. Jesus is also this. He's the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God. We are assured in, in Jesus fulfilling God's promise to David, we can, we can draw this application in truth. We are assured that God holds to his word. What do we call that? God is faithful. We can rest assured that because God holds to the promise that he held to, to David, that he holds to all the promises of the Bible. Because he has always been faithful to his covenant. Even when we are unfaithful, God is always faithful. There's something quite amazing, though, about Jesus' lineage. You see, the Israelites anticipated a king that, that would come to deliver the people. But in a sense, the, the Israelites, they, the Jews, they set their expectations too low. They imagined this, an earthly king sitting on an earthly throne, but they never imagined this truth, that God himself would come in the flesh. That God himself would descend and take on humanity. And so Jesus demonstrates that he's ultimately not a subordinate to David, that he's not under David, but that he's actually over David. And he teaches us this in his ministry in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. says this, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, Hear these words, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David, call, David himself calls him Lord. That is the one that's coming. So how is he his son? And then it says, and the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus may have physically descended from David. We know that through the genealogies that are found in the New Testament. But here's another truth. Jesus came from all of eternity. He's been eternally existent. David was not eternal, but Jesus, as John says in Revelation, Jesus was and is and is to come. He covers the whole spectrum of history. He 
is eternal, always existing in this way, in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We affirm that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His mother Mary, she was a virgin, conceived of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. A child was born, fulfilling not only God's promise to David, but also fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 says this, this isn't in your notes. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, hear this, and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God is with us. The prophet goes on to say a, a few chapters later in Isaiah 9 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, meaning he is a king, he is the king, and it says this, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Who here needs a wonderful counselor? I do. I'm messed up. Give me some counsel, Jesus. Says this, his name shall be called Mighty God. We have a mighty God in Jesus Christ. I love this title. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. It's such a beautiful picture of the tenderness and love of a father. Who needs a loving father? I do. And then, Prince of Peace. This idea is that, that Jesus brings not only peace. I mean, our, our idea of peace, I think, is, is rather shallow compared to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this word. It says shalom. It's this all-encompassing peace. Everything is at rest, at peace. He's the prince of that. The prince of peace. And Jesus is not only a, a human descendant of David, but he is this. He's, he's God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He's a supernatural union. We believe and we affirm this, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He's both at the same time. Not 50-50. It's not divided up into two parts, but 100% God, 100% human. <laughs> He's from David, and he's also Lord over David. Jesus' lineage displays that, that God holds to his word, and that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah of Israel coming from David, and also Lord over David. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus fulfills the office of king because of this, because he physically descended just like the promise of Scripture. He's the promised son of David, and he's also the promised son of God. Next, point number two, Jesus fulfills the office of king through showing us what his kingdom is like. Jesus shows us in his ministry what his kingdom is like. His kingdom is like this. It's a kingdom of healing and helping. It's a kingdom of healing and helping. 
I'm using some references out of Mark's gospel this morning. I, I really relate to Mark's telling of the gospel account because in my mind, I'm, I'm kind of spazzy myself. I jump all over the place and kind of rapid fire when I, when I speak. It reminds me of, a, you've been around a child that's just bursting with excitement to tell you a story about their day and where they've gone. And how do they phrase it? And then, and then, and then, and then. That's what Mark's gospel's like. Mark's like, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus healed this person, and then Jesus helped this person. Mark, in in rapid fire, tells us about this. He tells us about the suffering servant of the Lord who has come to assume his throne, not through military force, but through this, through suffering and death. His kingdom is a kingdom that is upside down from our expectations. King Jesus shows us what his kingdom looks like what his kingdom is here to accomplish. It is this. It's a kingdom, again, of healing and helping. Mark one thirty four says this, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus is this. He's a healing king. He can and will, we've seen this in the life of this church in particular, He can and will heal our physical afflictions. He's healed people with physical afflictions uh, in our congregation. Many of you have experienced the healing touch of Jesus, whether it be through miracles or through the miraculous touch of doctors and the advances of medicine that we have in our society. But even more so, even more than physical healing, Jesus does this. He brings about spiritual healing. He brings spiritual restoration. How do we know this? Because the Gospels tell us that he did this. That he cast out demons. Jesus is this. He's a king who sets us free. Jesus has set us free. And in his present reign, he sets us free from this. He sets us free from unbelief. From unbelief. He did this in his earthly ministry, and he now does it through the power of his Holy Spirit that he has sent. His Spirit can overcome unbelief. God's Holy Spirit is more than able to overcome our struggle with unbelief. Hear this. If you are praying for friends and family who are in unbelief, they have not called upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, hold fast to this truth that that the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit can overcome unbelief. Keep praying. Keep sharing. Keep declaring the gospel. His kingdom is a kingdom of healing and helping. An amazing example of healing and helping is when, uh, in Mark's gospel, a father brings his mute son, he can't speak, tormented by an evil spirit, and the spirit causes convulsions. It's in Mark 9. We witness in this story two things, a collision of, of the physical effects of sin, okay, the physical effect of what we call the fall, Okay, the fall of Adam and Eve not only marred us with sin, but it marred creation. Okay, Paul notes this in Romans chapter 8. He, he says the, the creation is groaning in eager anticipation. 
And so we feel the effects of the fall physically. And so we see in the story a collision of that physical effect of the fall on this boy, on this child, and also the spiritual devastation of sin because the child is tormented by an evil spirit, it says. Can you imagine now as a parent how desperate you would be? The father, desperate for help and healing for his son, also finds a savior. The father pleads in this way, Mark 9, 22 to 24. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, I love this response, if you can, all things are possible for one who what? Believes. For one who believes, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I don't know why, but this is one of, this statement that he says right here is just impacted my heart every single time I read it. The father is just so vulnerable and humble and honest, and he says this to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Have you been in that man's shoes before? I believe, Jesus, help me where... I'm struggling to believe. You see, family, you've come to the right place if you've had that question. And we don't have to hide it. You see, the church should be a place where God's kingdom is made known here on earth. It's a place where we can speak in the same manner as as this man. If you're struggling with your faith, if you believe in Jesus, but you're still saying, Jesus, help me in my unbelief, you're in the right place. Don't hide that. Bring it out. Reveal that. I believe God will honor that in you. Help my unbelief. Can we be a church that is vulnerable like this? Lord, I believe you. Help me in my unbelief. This man, before King Jesus, the ruler of the kingdom of healing and helping, declares such a humble statement. Pride, arrogance, ego is set aside, right? I mean, I can't imagine you're parenting a child who is tormented by an evil spirit and who is struggling with a physical ailment. I mean, how humble of a spot are you in, right? Pride and arrogance escapes you because you just there's no way to be prideful when you can't even help your own child. And so he comes to Jesus desperate. Pride, arrogance, ego set aside. King Jesus, I need you. Fix my son and fix me. What? Help my unbelief. Help me. What does Jesus do? Jesus answers that desperate prayer and plea. He heals the boy. If you read on in the story, the boy falls down and and starts going into convulsions. He appears dead, it says in the story. Well, what does Jesus do? He reaches out his hand, and in a sense, he raises that kid from the dead. He gives him life. And in the process of healing that boy, he helps the father overcome his unbelief. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus fulfills the office of king because his ministry displays what the kingdom of God is like. His kingdom is a kingdom of healing and helping. Lastly, how does Jesus fulfill the office of king? 
because he, because he is ruling and he is returning. The Bible says this again. We've, we've repeated this every week. He is and he was and he is to come. The unbelief of, of, the, of the Jews in this time, of many of the Jews, rests on the fact that Jesus didn't fulfill their assumptions or their expectations of the kingdom. And as we established early on this morning, the reality is, is that their, their expectations were too small. They desired and assumed a conquering earthly king who would overcome their earthly enemies. But God gives us this. He gives us something far greater. Because God gives us what we actually need. A king who was, this is what Jesus did, who was willing, who is willing, who did live perfectly in our place to heal and to help. And he does this. This is crazy. He's a king that does it this way. He died in our place. He died for us. There's an interaction that we have just on the, on the cusp of the death of Christ in John chapter 18. It's an interaction between Pilate and Jesus. If you don't know who Pilate is, Pilate was the, the ruler of the area where Jesus was crucified. So in a sense, he's a king. So you have two kings kind of face to face here. It says this, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, he asked this question, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Hear the... Hear the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God here. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, I mean, We can just see the blindness in Pilate's responses here in questions. So you are a king? Jesus answered, I love this, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Hear this, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate responds to him. Every time I read this, it's, just, it's heartbreaking to me. Because Pilate, you just... He's just blind to who Jesus really is. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says, what is truth? Still blind to who Jesus is. The expectations of the earthly kingdom were and are a stumbling block for many. How can the Messiah, how can the king come and die? The disciples, so, so we look at Pilate wrestling through this, the Jews wrestling through this, the disciples who were with Jesus wrestled through this truth. It's why Peter, when, when Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection, what, did, what was Peter's response? He rebuked Jesus. It's why the disciples would ask later on, after everything is accomplished, they ask this question, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They still didn't get it. But the reality is, is, is 
Jesus' kingdom is it's upside down because Jesus' kingdom is far greater than anything that this world has to offer. His kingdom, as he said, is not of this world, meaning this, it's not of this world system. Even Pilate, in a way, he unknowingly declares Jesus king. There's really so much irony in this, in this interaction with Jesus. So you are a king? Recounting this, Jesus replies, You say that I'm a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, the, the king of truth is present before Pilate, and the ones who know the truth hear the voice of Christ calling them into his kingdom. How heartbreaking is Pilate's statement back to Jesus? What is truth? I just don't get it. Hold that next to the Father's statement, I believe, help my unbelief. Pilate is blind. When Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, the soldiers fixed the title over him. What was that title? King of the Jews. He didn't come to establish an earthly throne, but in his death, he reigns. He reigns over our unbelief. He can give us believing eyes. He reigns over our sin. He's overcome it in his death. He's a king willing to die for his people. But in fact, he's not a dead king. He's the living God. Jesus did not stay dead. We declare this truth, the truth of the resurrection, every week here at this church. Jesus rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. He is then a victorious king. He's a living Savior. And after his, his ascension, he, he ascended to heaven. He took his place. Where is that place? At the right hand of God. In the book of Acts, when, when Stephen was martyred, he was proclaiming the gospel. He's connecting scripture. The Bible tells us that he looked up and he saw this vision in, in Acts 7.55. It says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, says he, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. And this is what he saw. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What an amazing picture. Jesus is at the right hand of God. The right hand is a position of all power and rule. He is king forevermore. He's not distant as we see with Stephen. He stands with us. He's connected with his people. Standing when we are afflicted. Empowering his subjects full of the spirit to carry forth that glorious good news of the gospel. We are, as in the kingdom, the kingdom would have heralds going out preaching gospel. Okay, except in, in, in the Roman Empire, the heralds would go out preaching, preaching gospel. Okay, but it, but they, what they were saying was the good news of the Roman Empire had conquered another people, had enslaved another land. That wasn't good news, but Christians took that term and they said, no, we have the real gospel. 
We have the real good news. We have a king who sits on high, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, who's ruling and reigning and has overcome unbelief. But there's even more good news. He's not only ruling, but His Word promises... And we know this, we know that God is faithful to his word, that God is faithful to his promise, and so that he will bring it to completion. And so we are certain, because Jesus has accomplished so much that we can hold fast to, that he came in the line of David, that he did die on the cross, that he did rise from the dead, that he is going to, family, return, that he's coming back. Going back into Revelation 1-7. It says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. There's two responses to the return of Jesus. To those who are found to be in Christ upon his return, what a beautiful picture to see our King coming. Those under the Lordship of Jesus, they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But as is described in in Revelation 1-7, this is the warning of this passage. It's terrible news for those who are in unbelief. So he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That is become, this, this is, that's because when he comes back, he's coming in judgment. Those who are found in Christ. So how, do I, how am I found in Christ? By placing my faith, my confidence, my trust in the finished work of Jesus. By declaring, like, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. By receiving his work. We don't make him that. He is Lord and Savior. We place ourselves under his lordship. And we respond to him placing our confidence in his work. And when he returns, then we are covered in his righteousness. We're judged according to his work and not our own. Praise God. But the warning is is implied here. If, If Jesus returns and we're not found in Christ, that means that we don't have our faith, our confidence, our trust in his finished work. Then we we come before God with works, but the Bible teaches us that our works towards salvation are but, it says, filthy rags in the sight of God. They're not good enough, is what it's saying. We need the righteousness of Jesus to cover us. We receive that through faith. But if we're found without faith when Jesus returns, then we will be, those people will be wailing when he returns because he comes in judgment. If you're in unbelief this morning, repent and believe upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because Jesus returns as the judge. If you're in Christ, we praise him and thank him for his grace and his mercy. And so what do we do with this? What's our application for this morning? What do we do 
with King Jesus. We do this, we strive to uphold our God-given calling, conforming our lives to King Jesus, conforming ourselves to his kingdom living. Paul, I believe, gives us a very useful teaching about this in Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul again says this, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, hear this, firm. To stand firm in Christ. I know it's not a a widely accepted message to talk about the, the spiritual realm in our Western advanced progressive culture. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are evil forces that are pushing back against the kingdom of God and the rule of Christ. And I leave you ill-equipped for that battle if I don't talk about it. Jesus will, we know this truth, at his return bring about the full consummation, that is the completion of the defeat of his enemies. But until such a time, the schemes of the devil, in a sense, as First Peter says, they prowl around like a roaring lion. Okay, I don't want you to get this picture wrong. Don't get me wrong. Jesus reigns. Jesus is on his throne. And in this period of time is calling people to his love and mercy and grace. And we must also be on guard against the wounded animal that is Satan. Satan was wounded at the cross, okay? You ever approach a wounded dog and try to help it out? You get a little too close and you touch that wound, what do they do? They lash out. They bite. They growl. And just like a wounded animal, which may not have its full strength, it is still incredibly dangerous, lashing out when one gets close or lets their guard down. That's what Satan and his demons are like right now. Lashing out. So Paul instructs us to beware. To know that our our deeper threat and enemy is that of the spiritual realm. The world around us is but a manifestation of the schemes of the enemy. He said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. And so then, what do we do? He tells us, we take up the armor of God, conforming ourselves to life in his kingdom and his rule, heralding, right? We're in a kingdom. We're heralding the good news about Jesus. Salvation and forgiveness is found in Christ. Purpose is found in Jesus. Jesus is our living hope. Jesus is this. He's our perfect prophet, priest, and king. I want to invite our worship team to come forward now as we respond to